You're listening to a Curry Mile podcast. Deadly. The Black Room. The Black Room is a fortnightly news podcast produced by the Curry Mile newspaper. I'm Kirk Page, one of your hosts, a Mullinjali man. And I'm Nick Payton, and coming up on today's episode, we will be yarning about the current COVID situation. We'll be talking to Palawa woman Gillian Mundy about a cultural burn on Luchuita country in Tasmania, and we'll be having our wrap-up of the sport in our current edition, 759, which is on sale now. I'd like to acknowledge that we are here on Widgeable Wyable lands of the Bundjalung Nation. And I'd like to acknowledge my country, ancestors and elders. First off the ranks, we are here with senior journalist Darren Coyne. We wanted to have a conversation about a story that's called Call to Arms, pun intended, um, which is sort of gathering some urgency around the communities getting vaccinated. As we all know, the current numbers have been rising. And there's some real great concern for those out in the western New South Wales region. Uh, there's talk about getting together and also looking to vaccinate more like 20 to 30 communities out in those areas. And of course, we all heard about uh, a death of a, of a man in Dubbo who died from the Delta strain. Um, so what are you thinking when, when we hear about, and there's a lot to talk about because of course, uh, Ken White has sort of contributed to the conversation and, you know, there's also some other people talking about how it's a little too little too late. Yeah. What are you, what are your thoughts when you read the story? What what did you think when you, when you saw this story in the latest edition, Nick? It's a horror story. Mm. The numbers are just horrifying. Um, I have to admit though, the hashtag vaccination, uh, very clever, um, very clever hashtag. Um, in this edition, um, you know, we've got, um, we've got the hashtag vaccination, uh, happening. Um, look, it is a call to arms. And I think that as much as that's a play on words as well, um, this is a call to, to everybody out there to get vaccinated. You know, we've got to a stage now where there, there really can't be any debate about it. It's, you know, going and getting informed and getting the shot and getting vaccinated. That's what I'm reading from this edition. Yeah. And there's also news to me actually was that now they're asking that children or, you know, young, older children from the age of 12 up get vaccinated. Yep. Um, and that you mentioned the thing about, you know, there's a little bit of fear and caution around the vaccinations. And of course, there's a lot of, also a lot of misinformation across all the platforms. And, you know, the irony is when I read the story and thinking about what we would talk about, what came to my mind was, you know, there is a little bit of a history of government policies and people standing up the top, looking down, telling us what to do. That's right. So there's a little bit of tension there, isn't there? It is. And uh, they're calling that, so the vaccine hesitancy. Mm. Look, why, why shouldn't people be hesitant um, if there hasn't been a plan? And as you said before, Kirk, we've got the um, shadow federal minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, saying just this week, it's a little bit too little too late. Our communities out there were saying, they were crying out a year ago, uh, shut us down, 
isolate us. We need to be protected. And here we are a year later. And those calls since being unanswered, things have just gotten out of control. Coin. Oh, look, uh, Nick, as you know, I've been on the phone to um, quite a few people out Western New South Wales in the last couple of weeks. And that is what they're saying. Listen, we were caught, we were crying out mm. for our town to be shut down. This is what people from Wilcannia were saying 12 months ago. We were saying, please lock us down. But you know what? With 800 trucks moving through and yeah. they couldn't do it. Well, the government had no will to do that. Now it's a massive, massive catch up. And as for vaccine hesitancy, yes, I can completely understand that. Um, it's all about messaging and the message from from our, our leaders, our politicians has not been clear. No. So obviously, you know, as you say, there's a history there of, of government imposing things on the mob. Yep. And, but saying that, um, in that area, what they've done, and I spoke with a fellow named, uh, Brendan Adams, he's the station manager out at Wilcannia River Radio. What they've done is they've brought in their local experts to actually give the mis message out correctly, speaking with the elders. Once the elders hear what's, what the true situation is, they are rolling up their sleeve. So, yeah. um, it, it has been about, it, it's all about the message. That's right. So I guess it we just, the thing about it is, is to kind of listen to health professionals, mm. the people in the local area who might, who are working in the health sector to, you know, have those conversation if there is fear around that. Um, the thing about it was I, one of the things that I was looking at was the percentage rates around the vaccinations and it oh, mm. listed like 21% of indigenous, the indigenous population out in those areas aged over 16 have been fully vaccinated yep. mm. and that there's th around 39% that have, that have had their first dose. Um, and that's just in New South Wales. There's also the similar kind of numbers in South Australia, although it looks like they're actually lower. Yep. Um, and you know, again, there's been a lot of commentary around it. I think we have to find a way to come together and, you know, if we can't find out the information for ourselves to also, you know, look to other family members or looking into finding out more information about those vaccinations and how that happens, because also you have to book online mm. and not everyone might not have a tablet in their hand or a computer or connected to the internet. And I got to say, Kirk, it's not the easiest process to navigate all those bookings online and knowing where to go or which website to go to. I think the whole process on how to actually go and get your shot or your vaccination has not been clear for the general public. Could I, could I just, uh, interrupt there and, yep. and say that it's very easy to book online if you have a computer yep. or a uh, smartphone yep. and indeed an internet connection. When some of these remote communities, they've got none of those things. That's, right. That's true. So how are they meant to book online or, uh, there's, uh, the local health clinics are understaffed. It's been a schmozzle right from the start and yeah, I think on summary, there's probably something around the nation's health system and the government that they need to look at how they can engage with those communities that are in need in a culturally safe and appropriate way. Mm. And it's mm. also about having the vaccines. Like Yes. They actually took vaccines from Western New South Wales back to Sydney to give to kids going to do their HSC. In Sydney? Yeah. 
So that means that for quite a while there, they didn't even have the vaccines to give it to people. Mm. So it's very easy for the Premier to get up day after day and the Prime Minister and say, people, you've got to vaccinate, you've got to, you've got to do this, you know, for the good of all. Mm. But unless you've actually got the supply of vaccines, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's difficult. So it depend, so, depended on those two things, mm. communications and the actual yeah. vaccine. Yeah, and look, you know, we're ringing up friendly countries saying, hey, hey, you got any vaccine? You know, it's like, it's like, or interstate. There's been a little bit of argy-bargy. Oh, totally, totally. And I was listening this morning between mm, Victoria and New South Wales, and uh, I'm just like, can we all just... The politics has been disgusting. It's and, foul. And sorry, what, this Pfizer deal, so we did the deal swap with the UK to get That's right. such and such um, thousand extra doses. What is the deal though? So we get the Pfizer, what did we swap for? A promise. A okay. Pro- a promise. I, and, and it was the same thing with Singapore. We, we took a, a, a big batch of Pfizer from them with the promise that we'd give them back some a little bit down the track. So... I think I think one of the situations here is that um, a lot of these vaccines have a use-by date. Mm. So countries which have a large sp- stockpile at the moment, they may not they they may have actually vaccinated enough people, but they've still got that stockpile. So now it's like they you know they're passing passing it off to other countries, and that's mm. cool. You know, hey, help out your neighbour. Mm. But the fact that we're at that point now, two years almost two years after this pandemic started, and what we're still horse trading over vaccines. Darren, I think like our front page and our main headline reads, mob helps out mob. It's mob doing it for themselves. And I know that on page seven, we've got a, a wonderful story um, of Camarita uh, organization. And we've got Crystal Waters there who has organized um, 22 pallets uh, worth of food produce to get out to Wilcania. Um, this is just such a beautiful story. And before I forget, um, we've got the bank account name and BSB and account details in the show notes for anybody that would like to send cash uh, or make a donation to the mob out there at Wilcania. Um, wasn't that just a beautiful story? It was a great story. Um, and, and look, you know, that, that is a classic case of um, Aboriginal communities looking out for each other. Um, when I spoke with Brendan from the radio station, he said all the people from the radio station were the first to volunteer to go out and start delivering food parcels to members of their community. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their shift at the radio station, then they're, they're, they're going straight out to help people. That's amazing. Um, when I spoke with Brendan, I rang him up actually, and he said, oh, no worries, brother, I'll call you back in half an hour. He didn't. Ah. So I rang bad. No, no, no answer. It wasn't until the next day I got him. He said, oh, sorry, brother. I fell asleep. He'd been going all day. He would no have been wonder. exhausted. He was. He was exhausted. Yeah. from Because yep. so those, the people who are helping with those donations and distributing those supplies, mm. they're like a hundred Ks out of Dubbo, yep. like from Wilcania and those mm. communities, Angonia and, and yep. um, Guduga. And it's not just food parcels. I mean, they're actually going out on kangaroo hunts too. Yeah. Wow just to get some fresh meat That's amazing. for the mob. And there was a bit of controversy about that because apparently I, now could be corrected here, but the police weren't too happy with these fellas going out and shooting kangaroos. And oh, I read about that. Yeah. There was something on the TV. Mm. Break, break, breaking <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> yeah. And, you person's got to eat, you know. Person's got to eat. That's right. 
And a person's got to have somewhere to isolate too. Remember that? That's right. Speaking of that, just the other day, a bunch of uh, motorhomes were sent out to Wilcannia, uh, about 30 of them. You know, brand new, spanking looking, beautiful things. I saw that. Now, that's because um, as people are getting infected, they, they're, or, or being a close contact of somebody who has been infected, people need to isolate. The problem is when you've got, when you've got 12 or 13 or 14 people living in the house, mm. people cannot isolate. Mm. So this is a problem which has not just come about because of COVID. Overcrowding has been a major issue in these remote communities for a long time. And people have been crying out for better housing. And all the service providers have been telling government we need better housing. This just shows that nobody has listened to those calls. Now we've got a situation where a virus has come to town They've had to bring in motorhomes. Well, now people are saying, well, what happens when when the virus clears? Do we get to keep those motorhomes? Mm. <laughs> hey? So it, they've been, all of these requests taken for granted and then the virus comes through yep. and then all of a sudden, isn't it interesting though, it's the community that are sort of helping. It's the community, the people on the ground. That's right. And where are these people sitting up in their offices in Canberra, you know? Mm. Yes. But then it goes, as you were saying, Darren, it goes back to overcrowding. Once the motorhomes leave, you've got, I think in your story there, it mentions that in a four bedroom house, you've got eight family members. Now, when you do the math on that, Mm. that's a very tight household. And once, as you said, once the virus, um, once it becomes a new normal, Mm. it just goes back to the same old ways. That's right. And if anything, I mean, this, this is not just put a spotlight on these issues here in Australia, you know, this is gaining headlines around the world. Mm. You know, Brendan from the radio station, he's been interviewed by the Washington Post, by the New York Times. Like, there's an interest in the way that our Aboriginal communities are being treated or have been treated, not just now, but historically. This is really putting a spotlight on it. Look, Darren, as we've mentioned all throughout this edition of the Mail newspaper, I think the moral of the story is to hashtag Vax the Nation. And, you know, we've got, we've got comments from, you know, Jay Miller, um, who's made comments, you know, he's saying he wants to get back on stage. He wants to start performing again. Everything, you know, has been put on hold. It's been cancelled. This is our chance to come alive again to start performing again. And Jay Miller said, look, if unless we all get vaccinated, we're not going to get back to those shows. We're not going to get back to the theatre. Yeah. So yeah. I feel, you know, that's that's a really good message that Jay Miller mm. um, is sending across to our communities. Yeah, it's a great campaign. And there's some wonderful artists joining there. Troy Casadaly, Briggs, AB Original, Emma Donovan, Jay Miller, as you mentioned, and Archie Roach is the awesome quote. In that story where Archie says, um, you know, it's like boxing. A few well-placed jabs can keep your opponent at bay. So let's get the jab to go and fight (laughs) COVID-19. That's great. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So that's a real, there's some good news there. Some really hot artists coming together for a really great cause. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Darren. All right. So Kirk, we have Bunjalung woman Tia Dalton who works in our advertising department here at the Kurumau newspaper. Tia, welcome to The Black Room. Thanks, guys, for having me. Now, Tia, the Kurumau newspaper runs an Indigenous higher education feature twice a year, 
and that covers new year intakes and mid-year intakes for Indigenous higher education centres across Australia. Can you tell us a little bit more about the feature? Yeah, Nick, for sure. Well, the feature is a chance for Indigenous higher education centres to advertise what programs, courses, events or stories that are coming up or have taken place that promote Indigenous success or opportunities across our nation. And because our newspaper reaches tens of thousands of readers, guaranteed each fortnight, it is an opportunity not to be missed. So right, here, It's definitely not an opportunity to be missed. And we have uh, special prices for full page and half page uh, adverts. And I believe you've got some other sizes and things available too. Yeah, for sure, Nick. And we are also looking for stories and pictures to go in what's one of our highlights of the year. And this is free of charge. That is deadly. Look, Tia, thanks so much for joining us in the Black Room today to give us a little bit of a rundown about the higher education feature, which is coming up in our next edition of the Mail newspaper. Now, we have extended the advertising deadline till next Wednesday, September 15. So if you still want to advertise in our higher education feature, you've got till next Wednesday, but you can catch all of those details in our show description. The Kurimao. Knowledge. Culture. Country. Connection. Welcome back to The Black Room, and now we will be talking to Palawa woman Gillian Mundy, who has written a beautiful story about cultural burning in this edition. Gillian, welcome to The Black Room. Hi, how are you? Really well. Thank you. Really well. So look, Gillian, what we've been taught, what we want to talk about is the benefits of cultural burning. So we can see that there's so many benefits, which, um, you know, mainstream Australia may not be completely understood what cultural burning is, why it's it's important and why it's existed amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities for tens of thousands of years. Yeah, well, oh, look, there's so many benefits. I mean, I think with the story I wrote, one of the benefits I pointed out that it was about carrying on a custom. That was part of what this cultural burn was about, but it's also got a lot of environmental in- benefits. I mean, there are environmental burns done anyway, so it serves that purpose also, which would be to reduce weeds, make um, passage through for animals and... Um, a lot of plants need it to fire to germinate, um, but often with the environmental burns done by like land management agencies, apparently I haven't been on one of these, but I've been told that they're quite hot and fast. So mm. the, that white smoke that you get from a cultural burn, the crackling you hear of a slow fire, the little creatures don't have time to get away. Right, right. Which. And obviously it reduces fuel loads, so it reduces the risk of wildfires, which we all know, yeah, we're also aware that are really devastating. Absolutely. And we and only need to look back to the 2018-2019 um, bushfire disaster in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, a lot of the Australian kind of fire, you know, fire agencies and that are, they're looking for other options. I know they looked at in the... Um, Royal Commission into the King Lake fires in Victoria a few years ago. I know that they, that was on their topics of what they discussed, cultural burning. Mm. I was down there at King Lake um, during that deadly bushfire season in Melbourne and it was devastating, Gillian. I had um, 
clients where I was working at a garden centre and most of our clients were up in King Lake and I had clients who never returned um, after they lost their lives in, in that deadly bushfire. Um, so it was devastating. Um, but we can see here that this is a little bit different. So this is a slow, cool burn. So this went over two days uh, yep. it, and it was at Dempster Plains in northwest Tasmania. Yeah, it was a beautiful button grass plains. They're sort of endemic to the west coast of Tasmania mainly. Mm -hmm. I'm some in central Tasmania. And I'd, if you look at the story, you'll see um, a little photo of bits of grass sticking up, little bobbly bits on the end. That's the button grass. Ah, uh, yes. Yep. And, and it's quite wet underneath. Like, you know, it, it was quite wet. I mean, I well could have worn gumboots. Huh. But it was still burnt, and, was, and there was some bits where tea tree crept in, and that burnt quite fast. And one of the other advantages of burning the button grass plains is we've gotten, which I don't think I mentioned in the story, is um, the or orange-bellied parrot from Tasmania, which are endangered, and they eat the, I think the scientific, oh not scientific, the name in the industry is green pick, the shoots, the green shoots that come back after the fire, they eat the green shoots and the button grass and I'm led to believe that that's good, very good for, you know, those parrots too, which are on the brink of extinction. Mm, sounds like the whole cycle of life, isn't it? Around burning off the country, getting rid of that fuel and then what comes after that is sort of all that regeneration and that sort yeah. of life-giving force. And, uh, I went up to the fireworks shops in Cape York a few years ago and up there, we noticed the birds of prey coming around as soon as there was a little bit of smoke. Oh, yeah. Looking for the, you know, little mice or lizards running out. Yes. Mm. That's something I didn't notice as much of here, but it's surrounded by forestry land, which is, you know, quite close to it's a lot. Yeah, there's been a lot of clear filling. Yeah, that happens a lot around this area when sometimes they burn off the cane fields. Yeah. And the critters will come screaming out and then, you know, <clears throat> the, the pickings on the edges of the field, you know foxes and birds and things. One of the things, I know when I first started learning about cultural burning and the revival of it, one of the things that's talked about a lot is changing that mindset of that, you know, fire is not to be, in the right circumstances, fire is not scary. Mm. It's changing that, you know, a slow, cool burn Controlled. isn't scary, not like a wildfire. And the more slow, cool burns, I understand there will be less wildfires and there's less pollution going to the atmosphere. Like, I don't know if you've been to a cool burn before, have you, Nick? I haven't, no, no. Yeah, well, the smoke is – it's a white, white smoke. It doesn't choke you. It's – I mean, you read in the story too, a couple of people said how relaxing it was and they're, they're people that have had to go deal with big, devastating wildfires too, like in comparison – it was calming, grounding, felt like home, relaxing. That, and I felt like that too. That comment from Steele Mansell, the ranger, who said he effing loved it. It's a learning curve from what parks do. Doing a cool burn made me feel at home. It was peaceful, soothing and relaxing. Oh, and, yeah, I'd go and do it again tomorrow if I had the opportunity. Oh, that's just so beautiful what he said. Yeah. And he's someone that's dealt with fighting remote area fires, like seeing the, you know, the devastating impact that, yeah, wildfires can have. Hopefully I'm going on Cape Barren, there's going to be some fire workshops for the women and there's COVID allowing, there's um, 
some women coming down from Cape York in a couple of months to join in with them. So amazing, something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, yep. Oh, that sounds incredible on old Barren yeah. Island. Well, yep. thanks for joining us today, Gillian. Thanks for having me, Woolika. The Kurumal newspaper is the voice of Indigenous Australia. 100% Aboriginal owned and operated. To subscribe, visit kurumal.com. Join me, John Paul Janke and Narelda Jacobs on The Point. For unique First Nations perspectives. You know, staff, yeah, they've done an amazing job over those first couple of days. And analysis of the biggest stories of the week. It wouldn't surprise me if there was at least 10,000 people. For all the news you need to know. She's not forgotten. We've got to keep her memory alive. And the conversations that matter to our communities. All of them have signed up to get their debts. The Point, Tuesday, 7.30 on NITV and On Demand. Welcome back to The Black Room. And joining us now is Darren Moncrief, our sports editor. Now, he's written a really wonderful article in the back of this edition. He's, this is what he's done. We've got, we've got like politics, we've got sport, colliding. It's a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it, Kirk? Mm. It's a mixed bag, as you said, a bit of politics, a bit of sport, a bit of this, a bit of that. And apparently it's been a bit of a shit show. Yeah. This is what he said. What, my column or the... No, he said... You you tell me. (laughs) Darren says, given how much of a shit show his handling of the coronavirus pandemic has been, I'm half expecting a no-show at one of these key events. What is he talking about? Who? Darren. Who are you talking about first? Talking about our erstwhile prime minister. Ah. Who has been... Who's, who's that again? Um, oh, we've got a Prime Minister. Somebody looking after this country. Apparently. Ah. Allegedly. Wow. Tell us about the story, Darren. Tell us about the story. Basically, in a nutshell, um, Australia is a sporting nation, right? Mm. That's undeniable. The ruling class aren't necessarily sporty types, but True. to tap into the masses... This, the, cynic, the cynic in me is to tap into the vote, you know, of the great, of the Aussie everyman. Yeah, I loved it. So they jump on the sports bandwagon mm. and pretend they can, are into sport. But really, out of all of them, there's only the last, say, 30, 40 years, only two of them are genuine sports fans. And that's Julia Gillard, mm-hmm. who's number one ticket holder at the Western Bulldogs when she was PM. And Bob Hawke, who's just a natural. Yep. You know, yeah. The others have Labor Liberal, the others have kind of put up a bit of a front and changed their spots as I write. Yeah, but what I loved about this, Darren, is that it's like, oh, this fellow's stirring the pot here. Because inside of it, it's kind of like, you know, this thing around at the moment, none of us can travel across borders. Yeah. So what I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. Like, so these football codes are having their semi finals. You go, yeah, and grand, grand finals. finals. Yeah, correct me if you need to. Grand finals, go yeah. for it. Grand finals in Perth and Brisbane. Yeah, so AFL and NRL. And if any of these politicians want to fly across to watch the game, like because the borders are closed. Yeah. How does that happen? Exactly. And you've kind of alluded to it in the piece, which is awesome. Exactly. So, so basically, tradition dictates that the PM is at the the big these big events. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, but. Given the current state of the nation, they probably won't, mm. which kind of, if anything, it'll actually helps Morrison to avoid um, 
like, because they're big, they're mass TV events, right? Yeah. And him not being there kind of helps him because it'll be a reminder in prime time of our national pastimes of, oh, right, yeah, right, there's this dude who, you know, he's not, he's politicised the response okay. to the pandemic. And just on the sport and politics, Kurt, yeah. sport and politics have always been been um, entwined mm. in, in this country. So um, it's not a new thing. No. But But a lot of people pretend that they shouldn't be. But it's it's always been it's, nations and countries have used sport to advance their interests. So Darren, mm. tell us what else has been happening in the sports section. Heaps. Leaving politics aside, well, we've just wrapped up the Paralympics. We right? have, mate. Yeah. And we have a historic um, gold medalist, first Paralympian to win gold, and that's our very own Amanda Reed in the five hundred meter time trial. Um, look at that photo of her. She looks beautiful. Look how proud she looks. She's holding a medal up. She's got a beautiful smile. Yep. Love it. Deadly. And so in that, we, um, talk about the two others, um, Ruby Storm. She won silver and bronze in swimming. Yep. And Samantha, she's Samantha Schmidt. She finished sixth, sixth in discus. We also got heaps of grassroots sport in our paper. Um, well, Kenya has been in the news, unfortunately for the, Lack of adequate response for our mob at that way. But there's a lady out there, by all accounts, she's incredible. Her name is Rhonda Hinch. Yep. She's been awarded the New South Wales Rugby League Indigenous Volunteer of the Year for her great work with the Pantu, uh, Pantu Warriors. Beautiful. Pantu Min Fish in Bakunji Lingo. So she heads up that rugby league club and she also got started a women's team, the Wakanya Wildflowers. And she's been, she's tireless in her work and jumped on the phone and spoke to her and she was pretty happy to have a yarn and we sort of, yeah, very proud for someone like that to win an award. Mm. Mm, deadly. Uh, Darren Moncrief, it's been amazing having you in here for another episode. Thanks so much for being in the black room. You're welcome. Anytime. Thank you for joining us here at the black room. Boogle Bear. My name is Kirk Page. And I'm Nick Payton. See you next time at the Black Room. Make sure you hit subscribe on your screen to stay up to date with the latest Black Room podcast. You can find links to our socials and other Kurimao podcasts in the show description.